You know, um, John, and, and I agree with him, will often refer to this time right here as family time, family gathering. We get together. And, and by the way, this family right here, it's a little bit different than your family. You chose, God gave a call, you chose to come and be a part of the family of God. The family you were born into, you had no choice. You are stuck with them for better, for worse, until death do you part, and then you're still family. You just can't shake it. And so what we do know about family is that, that there are expectations that we have in family. Like, for instance, we, with our kids, when they're born and they're little, we expect them to do what? Act like little kids, right? We just expect them to do stuff. You know, um, we don't like some of the stuff they do. We don't like it when they color on the walls. We don't like it when they throw stuff at each other and call each other names. But by and large, they are little kids being little kids, and we expect that out of them. And then, all of a sudden, out of the blue, they do something unexpected that shows that they have some maturity in their life, and we're absolutely floored because they're acting older than their age. And that lasts like for 30 seconds. And then they go the other way. Whatever gains they made by being mature over here, now they've gone not back to regular kid stuff. They've gone to the immature side. And then you're going like, you can't even win around here. What are we going to do with these kids? And you just want to like, you know, you want to love them like God loves you, right? You know what that means. He's going to take, God's going to take you to the woodshed and give you a licking some days. And some days that's what you need to do with your kids. Because we want to discipline them and train them up in the things of the Lord. Then you have your kids and, and they go and they hit middle school. And wham, right out of left field, you're hit with a roller coaster, roller coaster of hormonal teenageism. Those teenagers' hormones, it's like, I mean, I'm not kidding you. I remember with, I'm not going to say which two it was, but they're the oldest and the youngest. And it's not Tyson or Justin. But it seemed like when they're, they're, they're 12 and everything's, and they're 12 and then the next day's their birthday and they turn 13, it's like, overnight. It just happened like that. We're like... Whoa! Who are you and what would you do with our little baby? And, and all of a sudden, you, these little kids that were just so cute and so nice in their teenagers have just become unbelievable. And, and there's drama from everything to what we're eating to break for breakfast and that this eyelash is out of control and won't behave itself. And it's drama all over the place and you're just like, oh, good Lord, I think I just need to go on a... 40-year hike in the desert like Moses did. And they just things aren't going to cooperate. And then it seems like just when they're getting a handle on their hormones in their late teens, they all of a sudden have become experts on every subject from human suffering to the best flex fuel vehicle to buy. And, and then they express, their, they, they, they come, they've come to the conclusion that they can express their thoughts on at any given moment on anything they want to because it's a human right 
And no one should ever get fired for expressing their thoughts about how much their boss, the owner, is a stupid idiot. And the idea of having to work in order to get a paycheck is just ridiculous. (laughs) And that's what happens when you get out of teenage years into your early 20s. And this stage, it can last anywhere from five years to 35 years. And and they're in that stage of they know it all. They know everything and you can't tell them anything. And so, you know, that stage requires an intervention at this point when you still have a 36-year-old child living in your house. It's time for intervention and tell them to grow up. So somewhere between 22 and 32, you expect your children to grow up and to become mature adults and to contribute well to society. We want them to have a job, a good job. And and that means that in that job, there's room for them to advance. They can make some advancement. But they're going to be able to make enough money to pay their own bills, have their own cell phone plan, and cover their own car insurance. And then eventually, they're going to have enough money stored up so that they can actually ask that girl that they've been goo-goo eyes over all these years to marry them and then hopefully they'll save up some money so that they can have kids. And then you die. (laughs) You know, the reality is is the dream of every Christ-following parent is that we get our kids to the place where they're independent and they're loving God and they're serving God and they're enjoying life and they're not always coming over and asking for five bucks for gas. You know, we just want them to to get to that place. The problem is, is that we still have some parents who are coddling their adult children. They're in their 30s, 40s, and even in their 50s and mom and dad are still coddling them. And the rest of us in society are throwing up in our mouths because it's just so ridiculous. And we want something to change. Now, you may be going like, what does this have to do with First John? Well, actually, John now is going to start talking about family. And it's, it's a really uh, interesting thing because he's coming from a standpoint where he's going to talk about family even though it's not his family, they are his spiritual family. They are his spiritual children. And some of them are his spiritual grandchildren and maybe even great-great-grandchildren because now he is the last of the apostles, the last of the disciples. He has been following Jesus um, maybe longer than anybody else that's walking on the planet at this point because all the rest of the apostles by this time uh, have have died a martyr's death. And so John is the grandfather or great-great-grandfather to a whole slew of church people. And he's he's leading this church in Ephesus. And so he's speaking to them. And so he's making this appeal to the church. And he's going to address them in in a very special and unique way. So we're going to be in chapter 2. And here's the verses 12 through 14. I'm going to read them. Follow along, if you will. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. 
I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, at the first glance, when you read through that and you see those passages up there and you're, you've, you, you know, it's only 12 through 14 and you hear John, he's writing to little children and then to the fathers and then to young men and you're going and then next thing he says is children, fathers, young men, you're going like he's repeating himself. It's kind of like when you're, you know, back in the old days. How many people here have written a handwritten letter in the last year? I want your hand go up. Congratulations. You are you're people that still know what penmanship is. All right. So back in the back in the old days, we had to write letters if we wanted to do anything. When Lorinda and I were dating, and she was in Canada and I was in Oregon, you know, you would. And, and your, your true love is distances apart. And so you pen this letter out and you pour over it and, and you look at it and you, you write this letter because this is to your beloved. And then you put it in the envelope and you lick it shut and you put the stamp on it to Canada, which costs about $600. <laughs> and then you put it in the mail and guess what you do? You wait four weeks because it's going to take two weeks with the dog sled team to get it into Canada. She's going to read it. She's going to pour over it. She's going to cry over it. She's going to kiss it. She's going to reread it. Then she's going to write one back to me, put it on the dog sled team, and send it back to me. And then so four weeks later, I get the letter, and I'm at the mailbox, and I get it out, and the first thing I do when I get that letter is I go like this. (sighs) Oh. She loves me so much. <laughs> so those days are long gone. Now you get a text and you pull out your phone and you go like, oh, there's a little heart on there. That means she loves me. <laughs> Whoop-de-doo. <laughs> you know? It's just lost an emoji heart. Like, wow, that took a lot of effort. So at first glance, when you look at what John's doing here, you think he's writing this letter, and at one point he gets up because he's been writing the letter, and he's, he's talking to the little children, and then he's talking to the fathers and the young men, and then all of a sudden he remembers, oh shoot, I've got to go pay the power bill. And so he gets up and leaves his desk, and he gets his, his young guy that drives him around town to jump in the chariot with him, drive him down to the... You know, he has to pay his power, then he has to go pay his cable bill, and then he has to go over, oh, and he might as well get some groceries. But man, it's going to take a long time to cook that food, so let's stop and get something to eat on the way home. And then you do all this stuff. And it's like he comes back to the letter. It looks like he comes back to the letter like three days later, and he's going like, now, okay, where was I? Where was I? And he's going like, oh, oh, yeah. And then he starts all over again. I write to you children. I write to you fathers. I write to you young men. And it's like he's repeating himself just so he can get his train of thought rolling again to what he's going to say through the rest of the letter. And that's kind of what we think, because that's what old people do. They just repeat themselves. That's what old people do. They just repeat themselves. <laughs> and, and, and so that's kind of what we think's going on, but what is really happening is John's got these important things, and he's addressing the church in such a way that he really wants them to understand and get the point that he's driving home to them. And so he changes a bit of a stylistic writing as he's going through these few verses to get to the church. And he really wants them to get it and, and get going on what's going on. And so it's, 
it's that he's, he's not repeating himself for the sake of repeating himself. He's repeating himself for the sake of driving the point home. Also from first glance, it would seem like John is creating three different categories because he, he's addressing the, the little children and then the fathers and then the, the young men. And, you know, in our day and age, we might be thinking that uh, John's a little bit of a sexist because he didn't include any of the women in this. But if you read it in the original language, the, the um, male gender that he's referring to here is more inclusive than exclusive. Including all. So when he's talking about fathers, he's talking about fathers and mothers. When he's talking about young men, he's talking about young men and young women. And so it's not like what we have in our church, because right now, you know, we have different categories of ministry. In this room, in this room over here, we have our kids and kids ministry. The nursery's back there. On Tuesday nights, we have the youth group that meets in the coffee bar area. On Wednesday nights, we have the millennials. They meet in the coffee bar area. And then on, on Monday... Um, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, we have adult ministries going on throughout our community where adults are sitting down with other adults and they're, they're learning stuff about God's Word. And so that's how we've kind of divided it up amongst our church. But that's not what John's doing here. John is not trying to divide and make different segments about age in the church. It's totally something totally different than that. And so when he brings the identification here uh, of little children. He's using that terminology because these are like his little children. It's a word of, of, of love, endurement towards these people. He loves them so much, he wants them to know that you're like my children. And so he's calling the entire church little children because he loves them like they are his own kids. And, and then he talks to those that are there and he talks to the young men. In the faith. You know, he, he uses little children and then he identifies, the identification um, is that he goes to fathers. Now listen, when he talks about fathers and young men, when he, when he refers to young men, it doesn't mean that they are young in age. What it means is that they're young spiritually speaking. Because there could have been somebody who came to, to faith in Christ who was 55 or 60 years old, and, and the, when he refers to them here as young men, he's talking to them about their spiritual age, not their um, biological age. So he's, he refers to maybe even older men who are young men in the faith. And he's referring to fathers who may be like 35 or 40, but who have been walking with Jesus for maybe since they were like 10 or 12 years old, and they have really grown in their faith. And so he, they could be even the fathers or mothers. So when, he, when, when John here is talking in sweeping terms and um, speaking spiritually about the church, we know that there are going to be different levels of spiritual maturity within the church, just like there are in this church, and it's a good thing. Because what we have is we have those, those people who are new to faith, and we would call them babies in Christ because they, they, they really, I mean, it's like they've just been plunked down, and they don't know anything about anything in the Bible, and it can be really intimidating. And so what they need is food, spiritual food. They need to be fed. And so that's what John's talking about 
when he's, when he's talking about this. And there's two kinds of uh, spiritual infants in the New Testament. The first one are those who are new. They've just been born into God's family. And like infants, they need all the physical things that real infants need. They, they need food. Matter of fact, in, in Peter, when Peter wrote his letter to the church, in the second chapter, it says, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into full experience of salvation. We don't, when someone becomes a, a believer, we don't take them, you know, they come in and, and they've given their life to Christ and then we take them into my office and we don't give them Calvin's Institutes, Volume 1 and Volume 2, and say, here, read up on this. There's going to be a test at the end of the week. They would look at it and they'd start reading some words in there and they'd start going like, I have no idea what that means. I have no clue what these theological terms are. And so what we do is we come alongside of them and we start to work with them to teach them these new believers, uh, all about what it means to be a Christ follower because we're really following in the footsteps and the, we're following the command that Jesus gave at the end of Matthew when he said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, these new believers, these new disciples, teaching them to obey all of my commands. That's what Jesus, Jesus said to do. And so it's kind of like, all right, that's what we have to do because these new believers, they need love, they need care, they need encouragement, they need guidance and instruction. And that's the responsibility of the fathers and the mothers of faith to help grow up these spiritual newbies. There's also another kind of spiritual infant mentioned in the New Testament. Paul refers to them as a carnal believer or people of the flesh. They have made a public confession, announcement, or of some kind, but their conduct and behavior are more like that of an atheist than a Christ follower. Because they really don't believe what Jesus says really applies to them. They're still operating in that infant or in that small child way that they really don't think that the rules of the household apply to me. I'm a special kid, didn't you know? My mom and dad told me I can be whatever I want to. And right now, I want to be the principal of the school. And you get to go to time out, mister. And that's kind of the way they operate. And, then, and so we have these young believers that have never grown up because they continue to operate in the, in the, in the flesh. Here's what they look like. Um, and by the way, I'm not saying that they're not saved. The reality is, is they're just not bearing any fruit. They are loosely connected to the community of faith. They show up for church. They come in and they sit down. They engage in as little conversation as possible. They will speak if spoken to, but will not go out of their way to engage others in conversation. They leave as soon as church is over, and they really don't have any close relationships within the body of faith. They're, they're kind of an island all by themselves, and they've not really connected anywhere. That's why our small group ministry is so important to, to the life and the health of the church because we want people to get involved in there so that they're, at least they're hearing the Word of God because if you at least hear the Word of God, it's going to penetrate your heart and it's going to do something meaningful in your life. So, and, and some of you might be thinking right now, you know what? 
I shouldn't have come to church today. Pastor Ken's just being mean. He's just being a mean pastor, and that's all there is to I want to go to a church where they have nice pastors. So, it's true. I am being mean. But here's the other side of truth. The truth is, is that what Jesus says is that he does want you to come. People go, can't we just come? Come to church? Uh, yeah, absolutely. We want you to know that. We want you to come. But the problem is, is if you come and stay, and I don't mean like stay here, you know, when we turn off all the lights, you're going like, no, no, I'm good. I'm just going to stay for a while. Um, you know, I'm kind of like had to, had to turn in the summer holiday camper back to U-Haul, and I need a place to stay. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about coming into a relationship with Christ, but then staying right where you're at, spiritually speaking. Jesus wants you to come, but he definitely does not want you to stay where you're at, spiritually speaking. He, he, he doesn't want us to get our life in order before we come. He wants us to come so that he can get our life in order for us. He says, come as you are, but know this, Jesus says, I'm going to take you as you are, but I am not willing to leave you the way you are. You see, he wants to transform your life. He wants you to turn, he wants to turn you into something better than what you are. The version of you right now, U.10, is not that good. And you're gonna, some of you are going like, well, I'm the 2.0 version of myself. <laughs> whoop de doo again. Who cares? We want the 10.7, oh, you know, version of you, which looks more like Jesus than it looks like you. You know, I, I, my uh, district boss, we were having this conversation, and I have I'd known him since I was 10 years old. He, he was a pastor, kind of in the same area with my dad. He and my dad were colleagues together. And one day he asked me kind of a question. He goes, why did you do that? And I said, I think there's too much George and not enough Jesus. George is my dad. I inherited some stuff from my dad that wasn't Jesus. And that's kind of what we're looking at. The stuff that we inherit from our parents, the stuff that makes us who we are, isn't Jesus. And so what we want is we want the better version of ourselves. And that only comes when you are willing to let Jesus take you and deal with you in the hard issues of life. In John chapter 7, Jesus says some really hard things. Like we can only come to him because the Father has put a call on our life. And the only way that we ever have a relationship with Jesus is because we're saying yes to God's call to us. Amen. The problem is we're so narcissistic that we think that God needs us and therefore we said, hey God, look at me, I'm really great, you need me. And God's going like, thank goodness you called me because I didn't know what I was going to do without you. But the hard truth is, is that if I were really to take what Jesus said and boil it down to nuts and bolts, Jesus doesn't need any of us. That's the bad news. You know what the good news is? He wants every one of us. 
That's the difference. He wants us. He wants a relationship with us. He wants to walk in fullness with us. He wants us to be transformed. And he is not willing to leave us the way we are. He is going to take us and make us into somebody new. He's going to transform us. John also, John also recorded in the 15th chapter of his gospel that, that he's, what Jesus said that every follower of his will bear fruit and those who do not bear fruit are not true followers. And actually it says that the father who is the vineyard will cut those vines off and throw them into the burn pile. You think I say hard things. Read what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you're not going to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. He looked at his disciples and goes, because a lot of other, a lot of people, when he said that, they're going like, who can hang around this guy? He's asking really hard stuff of us. We can't do this. And so a bunch of those people that were following him, like I'm talking about thousands of them, got up and they left Jesus. And Jesus turned around and he looked at his disciples and says, do you want to go with those guys too? And you know what Peter said? Peter goes, where would we go to? Who would we follow? You're the only one that has words of life. No, we're not going anywhere because you are the Messiah. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And we're going to be with you until we die. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. So most of the time, not always, the people who are spiritually immature are the ones who continually make excuses for their lives. Have you ever been around somebody who's, who's spiritually immature and you start talking to them and, and what they do is they start off by complaining about their life. They look at somebody else who God is blessing and they go like, why would God bless them? They're, they're, not, they're not me. God should be blessing me. Why doesn't God bless me? It's not fair that he blesses them. I should be blessed. Why are they getting blessed? And then you start looking at them. You go like, well, let's just walk through some of the things that Scripture says. Have you been, like Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 7, abide in me and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you will and it be granted to you. Are you abiding in Christ? Is the word of God abiding in your life? And they go, no. Well, tell me, how's your prayer life? What are you praying for? I'm praying that God will bless me. Okay, how's that working out for you? Not so well right now, is it? Because you're jealous and envious of the person that God's blessing. God wants to bless you, but there are conditions in regards to that. And so what we have is we have people who are immature and they just make excuses for everything. They make excuses why they can't participate in connecting in community. They make excuses for why they don't do what they say they're going to do. They make excuses for disobedience. And the list just continues to go on and on and on after excuse, after excuse, after excuse. But here's what happens. And, and I get it. Life is challenging. And we've got all kinds of things coming at us. But I want you to know that if it is really important to you, if God has really impressed it upon your heart, it doesn't matter how crazy, how busy, how nuts so life gets around you. If it's really important to you, you'll get it done and you'll participate. If it's important. It comes down to a, an issue of priorities. And the mature person, here's what they do. When things go awry and things go crazy and they're not getting some stuff done because things have fallen through the crack because that happens in life they don't make excuses what they do is they take ownership of their stuff 
They're going, you know what? I should have had that done, and I should have followed through on it, and I should have called you and let you know, and, and I didn't do that stuff, and that's my bad, that's my mistake, and I want you to know I'm going to work really hard and not letting that happen again. And by the way, here's how you could help me, and they explain how you could help them, and then together you move along in relationship with God, and that's what we do, because we're no longer making excuses. We own the stuff. That's the difference between someone who is growing in Christ and someone who is refusing to grow in Christ. They're like new Born babies sitting on the sideline, not being involved in anything. So, all right, we're done because I gave you all the happy news first. <laughs> now, here we go. There are some really encouraging words to all of us who are part of the family of God. Look at verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. You could also read this because your sins have been forgiven. And the way John uses the sentence structure here, it carries the meaning that your sins have been forgiven once and for all and will never be brought up before God again. That's the way it's written. That's the meaning of your sins are forgiven. Forgiveness is the fundamental experience of every Christ follower, and it is the condition of fellowship with God. Forgiveness for our sins is, is the one thing we all have in common here this morning. If you're a Christ follower, if you're walking with Jesus, the reason you're here this morning is because we all share this little thread called forgiveness in our lives that runs off of the cross of Christ. That's our common experience together. That's what makes us family. Forgiveness of sin is at the very heart of, God, of the gospel, and that's, that's exactly why we... When we come to truly encounter Christ, Jesus, in our lives, and then we get intentional and are connecting others with Jesus, and they have an encounter with Jesus, and they experience forgiveness for the first time, it's at a level that goes far beyond any kind of knowledge they have stuffed in their head. And it's all because of what has been transformed in their heart. And if that isn't enough encouraging word for you this morning, John adds this little phrase, for his name's sake. Our sins are forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. We are forgiven on the basis of who he is and what he has done. Our sins are are forgiven, but not for our sake. John is saying this, your slate is clean, it will always remain clean, because Jesus died in your place. That's why we're all, we all have this fresh start clean, because it's all what Jesus has done for us on the cross. This is the concept of forensic forgiveness. Forensic forgiveness simply means that when you trust in Christ as your Savior, God, through Christ, forgives you of all of your sin based on the atonement that Christ made on the cross. And we need to understand that there's two types of forgiveness with God. There is forensic and fulfillia forgiveness. And when we sin, we break fellowship with God but we are still in the family. We do not lose our position as a son or a daughter with God, but we do lose our fellowship when we sin. Do you get that? Do you understand that? If you hear nothing else this morning, I want you to hear this, pack it into your heart, 
and think about it for the rest of the afternoon. When you sin, you break fellowship with God, but it does not remove you from God's forgiveness in your life. You don't have to go back and regain forgiveness for all of your sin. You don't have to do that. But what it does is you break fellowship with God, and then there's this this wedge that's driven between you and God in relationship to God, and what happens then is is that you are no longer in fellowship with God, and a lot of other bad things are going to come along your way until you get back into fellowship with God. And that's why 1 John 1, 9 is so important, because when we confess our sins, now we are back, we have been reconnected, we have been reunited, our fellowship is back with God, we have, we have been restored to the Father in fellowship. But all of our other sins, they were always forgiven and still forgiven. If you would have died in that moment of, of committing sin and not come back into fellowship with God, you would still go to heaven. You would still be a child of God. You would still enter into the presence of Jesus. And you would hear the words of Jesus, enter into the joy of your Lord, good and faithful servant. There should have been about 1,800 amens right there. (laughs) That's why Romans 8.1 is so important. Because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. So, here's what it looks like. God has forgiven our sins for his namesake. Now, just remember that. For his namesake, not our sake. You guys remember the 23rd Psalm? That's probably the most famous psalm there is. Psalm 51 should be just as famous, but you probably don't know that one. Look it up. Psalm 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd psalm. At verse 3, it says the psalmist wrote this about God. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for what? That's right. He didn't lead you in a path of righteousness for your namesake. He did it for his namesake. The prayer of Psalm 79 says, Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins. For what? Your namesake. Are you getting the picture? It's for the the sake of God's name. Listen. Listen. I want you to hear this. My sins are not forgiven for my sake. They are not forgiven for anything I have done or deserve. But because of what Christ has done and earned for me, my contrition, my repentance, my faith could never earn God's forgiveness. They are means of receiving that forgiveness. But the forgiveness itself is granted to me For his namesake. God's forgiveness must be forever detached from our merit. Isaiah 43 says, this is God speaking. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will remember, I will not remember your sins. Do you get that? Do you get that what God does with your sin, what God does when he forgives you, what he does is he blots it all out 
never to remember. Now, listen, here's the thing is that we go like, but God knows everything. You're right. He does know everything. And does he know all your sins? Yes, he knows all your sin. But when you step under the umbrella of 1 John 1, 9, and you confess your sin to God, guess what he does? He chooses never to bring that sin up and hold it against you again. He chooses not to remember it. God's divine honor itself is at stake. If, we were to re- if he were to refuse to forgive the sins of any repentant sinner who called upon the name of Jesus for salvation, we, the saved sinners, are forgiven for his namesake. Listen to this. My sins, your sins, no matter how massive, how many sins you've accumulated over your lifetime, no matter how filthy and dirty and rotten your sin is, no matter how big you think your sin is, none of it is too much or too great for the God of mercy to pardon. Because of the unsearchable riches of Christ's atonement, there is not a single sin, no mass of sins, so many that they are beyond God's forgiveness. They are all forgiven. Our love, our service, our devotion to Jesus should be in light of the great sacrifice he has made for us in being for us and forgiving our sins for his namesake. All right, let's move on to 13. John says, I'm writing you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. Now, let's just, we're going to quickly go through this. Because when, it, when John is speaking here, he's speaking, first of all, to the fathers. He's speaking to the spiritual, mature people of the church. And, and, and again, it's not a male-dominated thing. He, when he refers to fathers, it, you could read it father or mother. And, and, and he uses the same idea in the term of young men, young women. We need to keep the focus where it belongs, and that's on Jesus. Because here is, is what he's saying. To mature believers, you know the one who has always been and always will be. You know who Jesus is. He is eternal. He is not going to shift or change. There's nothing that's going to change about him. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he is not going to change. We're the ones that change. There is is this, the, the key mark of the maturity in this context is knowledge of God through Jesus. There is something about sitting around with a mature Christ follower who has walked with Jesus that comes from many years of trusting him. I don't know if you've ever done it or had the privilege to sit around with somebody who has loved Jesus longer than they didn't. I, I, one of the first guys that comes to my mind is Fred Meyer from up in, in Canada. And Fred, he loved Jesus so much that when you sat with Jesus or... <laughs> When you sat with Fred, you were sitting with Jesus. Because that's, that's the truth of it. He sat there, and, and out of him came this, this confidence in who Jesus was. His pacemaker was about ready to give up. He says, I've already been having this. The warranty ran out on his pacemaker 30 years earlier. And he goes, Jesus wants me here. He keeps my pacemaker going. But when you sat with Fred, 
all you ever heard him talk about was Jesus. There was a sweetness about him. There was a disposition with that man that you could not get with anybody else. When you sat and he started to talk about Jesus, he talked about Jesus in such loving terms that he could never say the name of Jesus without having the tears starting to stream down his face. And when he was done, he would say, I love him so much. I just love him so much. Fred brought peace where there was turmoil. Fred brought comfort where there was disease. Fred brought the very presence of Jesus into every room he walked into. That's what a mature Christian looks like. You don't get that after five years. You don't get that after 10 years. You don't even get that after 15 years of walking with Jesus. It takes a lifetime of being consistently in the presence of Jesus. That means that you're consistently reading the Word of God to let Jesus' Spirit minister to your spirit, to grow you, to help you understand what it means to be a mature Christ follower. It means that when you sit down and you start to have a conversation with Jesus, it's having a conversation with the best of friend you could ever have and the person that you absolutely trust the most with every aspect of your life. And there is nothing you would ever hide from that person. He knows everything about you because you've revealed it to him. He knew it before you revealed it. But you've revealed it out of a heart of love for him. That's what it means to grow immaturity and to be a Christ follower. John also addresses the young men, those who not like brand new babies but still young in the faith. He wants them to know that just because you're no longer baby, what do we do? We spend a lot of time taking care of the babies, right? I'm going to tell you right now, the, the, um, the two grandmas in my family, that one back there and that one over there, they spent more time taking care of that little bambino named Ava. They They loved their kids, but they knew that the Bambino, she needed more attention than those kids did. And so what can happen sometimes is that when you have the little baby, the the young children get lost in the mix. And so what John's saying is here is like, I get it. You're not a baby anymore. You're not a mature Christian. You're a young in your faith, but you're important to us. You're really important to us. And, and so he, he addresses them about how important they are to their faith because he wants them to understand that they, they have earned the right to press on because they have gone into battle. They have secured a victory over the enemy. Their faith is built through this victory over the enemy. And we recognize that it is when we trust and surrender to Jesus, we submit to the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, we will experience more victories in our life every day. And the more victories we experience, the more we grow in our faith with Christ. If you're not experiencing victories, I dare say you're not growing. Notice in verse 13, he ends with another word to children. Only this time it's a different word from the Greek that was translated earlier as little children. The word is more common through the New Testament, connotes young age or innocence that is associated with childhood. So he is actually talking about little kids who are innocent here. And, and, and he's talking to them because he says to them that Do you, I write to you children because you know the Father. Have you ever heard a little kid? I mean, I, I just love listening to little kids talk to God. They talk to God like 
He's sitting right here. He hears every word. And he's paying attention to everything that's being said. And, and I think that they have such a vivid imagination that they see God. But there's an innocence about them that needs to be protected. We have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to these kids here, teenagers, kids in these rooms. We have a responsibility to protect their innocence. God will hold us responsible to that. Now, in 14, John 14, he says, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, John changes the the grammar here. He's using it in a different way. He's wanting to bring it home. He has gone from saying, I'm writing to now saying, I write to you or I have written to you. He wants to make sure that the point is bring home as to the intent of his message. So the second time he uses fathers, a.k.a. mature believers, he says, you know God first by the virtue of new birth because you, of your dedication to a lifetime of walking with Jesus and your spiritual maturity has taken you into a deeper knowledge of the Father and you know him with an intimacy that only comes with time. You want an intimacy with the Father? You want to know Him better and deeper than you have ever known before? It's a time issue. It's not McDonald's. It's raise that cow from a calf to full grown. Butcher it. Let it set. Cut it up. Cook the meal. It's going to take a while. So settle in. Get comfortable. And go with God. John now mentions again young men, only this time with a slight nuance in what he says. This time he says three things about them. First, he tells them they are strong. That is one of the characteristics of youth, is strength. You know, my boys, including my son-in-law, Cody, if there's any place you want to take a young man where he is going to show off his strength, but it is going to come back to bite him on the backside, take him golfing. And then you just say, you know what? When they put that ball up there with their driver and they're going to hit it, you go, you should just cream that thing. You should knock it all the way. You should hit that thing as hard as you can. I'm just a wimpy old guy, and I just hit it 275 yards straight down the middle of the fairway. I bet you could hit that thing 300 yards. And they're going, yeah! And they grip that thing. And they get that head spinning around fast. And they crank it and it goes, <laughs> And I go, that thing would have gone 600 yards if it would have been straight. But you can sucker these young, strong guys into hitting hooks and slices and everything in between because they can hit the ball so much harder and faster than you can. And it's marvelous because you can win a game. Until they hit that one shot that... They drive the entire hole and land it on the green. You go, oh, that one lucky one just killed me. (laughs) But that's what we expect from young men, young women, is strength. He tells them they're strong. Look at, he's saying it to these young guys. Look, those of you who are younger in the faith, you are strong, and the reason you are strong is because the word of God is in you. 
Your spiritual strength doesn't come from how many push-ups, sit-ups. If you can, you know, run faster, climb bigger, do all the rest of that, lift more weights. That is not what makes you spiritually strong. It's the Word of God in your life that makes you spiritually strong. The second thing John says about the young men is that they are strong spiritually because they know and use the Bible. Listen, it's one thing to read the Bible. It's a whole entire different thing to know it and then to use it the way God intended for you to use it. The third result of their strength derived from their knowledge and practice of the Word of God in their lives. The young men, young women, have overcome the evil one. You cannot overcome the evil one without having the Word of God in your heart. That's what the Bible tells I hide the Word of God in my heart so that I won't sin against God. You, you, you will, if you don't hide it, if you don't tuck it in here, if you don't know it up here and in here, you're going to find yourself in a world of hurt because that's what happens. This is the place where we take a stand against the evil one. I want you to hear me on this. He has no authority in your life as long as you are united with Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Satan, the devil, the evil one, he has no authority in your life. Christ has full authority. The second problem, the second thing is the problem is that we will at times give the devil authority by simply giving into temptation. Because we haven't hidden the word of God in our hearts. You know, when Jesus went out for 40 days and he fasted after he was baptized by John the Baptist, he went out 40 days into the desert. He took no food with him. And the, and the, and the devil, Satan himself, came and he tempted Jesus. And the way that, that Jesus handled Satan was he took the word of God and quoted it to him and said, this is what the word of God has to say. I will not depart from it. But yet we think we're stronger than Jesus because we don't do that. What we do is we get tempted by it and we're going like, no, nope, I'm not going to give in to that. I'm, not gonna, I'm saying no. I'm just going to say no. I can say no. I've got the strength to say no. I'm not going to do that. I will, I re- okay, I want to do that right now. I just can't help myself. I've got to do this thing right now. And they step in and do the sin. And then after we're done sinning, we go like, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why did I do that? Well, because you're an idiot. That's why you did that. Because you didn't take the Word of God and hide it in your life. You, Satan can't, can't exercise authority over you if it's only the authority of Christ through the Holy Spirit residing in your life. It's the sword of the Spirit in the Bible that we use against Him. That is exactly what we have to do because that's exactly what Jesus did. So here's the secret of spiritual growth and strength. It's the knowledge and practice of God's word in your life. Knowledge of the word takes the power of Satan's hands and and negates it. We then become the warriors of Jesus and we will take back what belongs to our father. And you know what belongs to our father that Satan has stolen? The lives of men, women, and children. And we will take it back when we stand in the authority of Christ. We'll take it back in Lander and in Fremont County. Now, here's a big question. How do you do that? What is the way in which we take authority and stand 
against the enemy of our soul who's come to rob, kill, and destroy. Well, here it is. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. It'll be on the slide. Write it down. Learn it. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in, in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on, get this, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You want to know how to combat the enemy? (laughs) Do that. Today, God, I put on the helmet of salvation. Today, God, I'm strapping on your breastplate of righteousness. I am going to take the sword of the Spirit with me so that I can fight the enemy. I'm going to take the shield of faith so that when the enemy shoots his darts at me, your faith will put them out. That's how we do it. That's how we get victory. That's how we step into, step into maturity. Amen? Amen? Father, we thank you that um, you don't just give us good ideas You give us practical things that you want us to do, to step into, to live by. You want us to grow, to become mature fathers and mothers in faith to other people, to help them grow in their relationships. There are some of us who are new at this, and so we're looking for others to help us. There are some of us who have been at it for a short while, and we have had some great success, but we need to continue to press on. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and our lives, that we would look around us and say, who can I come alongside? Who can I father or mother? Who can I encourage? Who can I bring along with me? Because it's as we go through these things that we grow and you are calling us all to maturity. You're calling us not just to maturity, but to be reproducing ourselves in other people so that we have new birth here in this church. We pray that you would bring people who would step into faith so that we can help them grow in their faith. So we commit all this to you in the great name of Jesus.